Today I'm reading from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. Actually, you know, I feel a feeling about you guys today. I feel a little bit, uh, things are great this morning, but we just a little thing, you know, when things aren't exactly the way they normally are and, you know, we, Little things a little different. I kind of feel like you ever sort of walking down the hallway and you're sort of off balance. You're not sure what that is. So I just would like to stop and I feel a little bit like that. So I'd like to, let's just pray before we get started and then we'll, we'll get going here. Avinu Malkainu, our Father, our King, we just thank you for this time that we are able to gather together in your name in one accord. We ask that you, uh, we just, in, we ask that you can take over. Don't just, we don't just invite your presence. We ask your presence to, to take over, that you would open our minds, our hearts. You would help us to lay aside all the, any burdens that we're carrying, any distractions, any other things that we might be thinking about, Lord, on this, this beautiful day that you've given us, and just help us to focus on you. Uh, help us to be receptive, Lord, and I ask that you would, uh, whatever you have to say to those who are gathered here today, myself included, that you would just uh, speak uh, your words through me, Lord. Help me to convey what it is that you'd like for us to hear today, Lord. So we commit this time to you. And uh, have your way with us today, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. <clears throat> For some, some of you, uh, I'll just kind of give you a little background on my, before I came to Denver, um, and actually still now, I still work for a property management company, so I, I do uh, work for a company that manages apartments, and does everything with the apartments from, you know, paying mortgages to collecting rent to doing maintenance to dealing with regulatory stuff and all that, because one of the, the niche areas that we work with is um, affordable housing, okay? You can put your word on it, but that's the official word for it, affordable housing. So we work with, it's a particular, particular demographic we work with, and it's pretty challenging. Most of the stuff we manage is on the East Coast, a lot in Washington, D.C., but, you know, Maryland, all these other places up and down the East Coast, down to Florida, up to uh, Connecticut, and, and, and so forth. So um, that's what I did full-time before I came to Denver to enter seminary, and that's what I did through seminary, and that's what I continue to do even as I serve here in my capacity at Yeshua Tzion. Um, there was a, uh, I want to tell you a little story that I got kind of reminded of from this passage today, and hopefully I can, we can use it as a sort of a framework for, for what we're going to talk about. Um, we worked for, what we do is we, we manage for owners typically, and we had a particular owner who owned a bunch of property in Washington, D.C. He owned a bunch of townhomes in Washington, D.C. And he'd, he'd owned them for 30-plus years. This was a, very, a successful guy. He'd done other things. He was actually an Air Force One pilot, and he had owned these properties on the side, and we managed them for him. And this was back when, uh, you know, real estate was just booming, and people were just selling properties right and left, uh, especially in Washington, D.C., and this guy said, you know, I've done this for 30-plus years. I just want to be done with it. I'm re basically retired anyways. And, I mean, he, he had like 30 townhomes. They're probably worth half a million apiece. I mean, you do the math. It was an opportunity for him to make a, a ton of money. And so he, we, we proceeded to help him 
relocate folks that were living in those, in those townhomes. Um, there's a particular thing in, in D.C. and other places uh, called a Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, T-O-P-A, they call it TOPA. And there's things called TOPA rights. And what those rights say, basically, in the, in the district, <coughs> and under, under this act, is if you, if you live in a property, you have an opportunity to purchase the property that you've been renting. Some of these people have been there for many years, and, and so uh, there's a lot of details surrounding TOPA, but you basically you have to let people you know, exercise their options or, or not exercise their options to purchase. And so we went through the process of doing this, and a lot of these people in these, in these townhomes, you know, they, they realized they, they weren't going to buy their townhome, and they, we helped them relocate. But there were a handful of folks at the very end that were just hanging on, that really wanted, you know, the, their, their rights actually expired, but unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. You can still tie things up in litigation. So people were, were, were sort of tying us up in litigation. They had attorneys that were working for free and felt they were really helping some people who you know, wanted to buy their home but weren't being let by their home by the, the wealthy you know, uh, owner who had, who had been abiding by the law here. But anyways, we were embroiled in this, in this long battle with a few people who were holding on uh, to exercise their TOPA rights. So I was involved with, with kind of, you know, we, we were the defendants. I mean, we were the defendants in this case. I mean, the owner was, and I was kind of on the ownership side. So we were being sued by people who wanted to exercise the TOPA rights. So there was one particular um, uh, arbitration meeting I was in. And an arbitration meeting is basically, if you're not familiar, uh, before you go to court, the court will say, you know, before you waste our time here in court, go to an arbitrator. We'll appoint an arbitrator, someone that will bring the two sides together and try to work this out so we don't have to go through the trouble of going through the, all these legal proceedings, um, which is good for everybody. I mean, the folks on, that were suing us, they had free attorneys, but we were spending, you know, ridiculous amount of money per hour for attorneys to defend this. Um, so we went to arbitration. There was a particular arbitration meeting I was at with this, this high-powered attorney, uh, Robert Greenberg. He, uh, he was a real piece of work, but he was a really good real estate attorney. And uh, so we're there at this, this arbitration meeting, and you've got an arbitrator, a person in the middle who who will bring the, the plaintiffs and the defendants into a room, and you meet for a few minutes and kind of get all the facts. And then the arbitrator will say, okay, plaintiffs, you, you leave the room for a few minutes. Let me talk to the defendants here. And then we kind of switch roles and do it the other way. And the arbitrator will kind of come up and decide, you know, he'll try to explain, he'll try to get the picture, or he or she will get the picture, try to hear from each side, and maybe offer a little bit of, well, here's, here, let me give you my perspective on this, and try to come to an agreement and bring us back together. Um, and so... We, were, we had gotten together at this one particular arbitration meeting, myself and Mr. Greenberg and, and then these folks over here, and uh, the arbitrator kind of got the facts, and he said, okay, you know, defendants, which, which was us, you, you guys can leave the room. So we're getting up to leave the room, and Robert Greenberg, he and I are walking out of the room, and he stops, he turns around and says, oh, just so you know, he's telling the arbitrator, and this is in front of, you know, several people. This isn't just, just, isn't just one plaintiff. He says, just so you know, they're going to have to prove ready, willing, and able, meaning that they were ready, willing, and able to purchase these townhomes. And then he proceeds to divulge you know, private financial information about Mrs. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so. And, -so and, and he says, so you can see that uh, they're not ready, willing, and able. They weren't then, and they aren't now. And then he turns around and walks away. And, and you can just see their, their jaws are just dropping when, you know, He's just telling all this stuff and pretty much just saying, you know, you're not, you're not ready, willing, and able. Not then, not now. And, and I remember that. This happened many years ago, and I still remember that story. <coughs> and, it was, and right then it kind of occurred to me that, gosh, you know, we're, we're embroiled in this, in this battle. And some of the folks in the room legitimately 
wanted to purchase their homes. Some of them honestly were there because they had heard what's been going on. The trend was that if you hang on and you cause enough trouble, they'll just give you some money. They'll pay you. And sometimes big amounts of money when you're talking about selling a, you know, a $500,000 townhome or something or even more in some cases. Okay, look, will you take $70,000? Please leave. You know, because I can't sell this with you there. And so people were hanging on, hoping that they could get that. But some of the people were, were literally, they really wanted to buy, they really wanted to, to purchase their townhome. But the reality was, they just weren't ready, they weren't willing, and they weren't able. They just weren't prepared to act. They weren't capable of acting. And that was the hard, cold fact. And I wonder about that with us, with anyone in here, with anything, not necessarily buying a, a townhome necessarily, but you know, is there something in your life maybe you want to do? Maybe you're thinking you want to go to, you know, go back to school, or maybe you want to, uh, you're wanting to get married, you want to have children, you want to, uh, in Colorado we talk, I hear this, you know, 14ers, you know, climb the 14er, you want to run a marathon maybe. There's plenty of things in life that we would like to do, but the question is, are we capable of them? Are we prepared? Are we ready and willing to do what it takes? And sometimes we're just not ready, right? And that's okay. Sometimes we're ready but just not willing. And sometimes we're ready and willing but we're just not able. And I wanted to kind of put that story out there because as we, <clears throat> as we continue our observation and discussion of the verses that, that were read today, um, I want them to serve as our guide and inform us on this topic that we've been focusing on over the last few months. And namely, that topic, for those of you who've been here, for those of you who haven't, the topic has been you know, being involved in what God is doing in terms of building here at Congregation Yeshua Tzion, at CYT. And I've asked the question <clears throat> before in prior weeks, and I've answered it in prior weeks, the question of, is God working in building something here at CYT? Is he actually working in building here at CYT? And I've, I've answered it before, and I say it again, you know, after, I believe after 24 years of ministry and 24 years in existence, I believe that's a resounding yes answer. And if you've been around uh, Jewish stuff, or if you've been here before, you might have heard a prayer called the Shehechianu. It's a prayer that we say, and basically we're thanking God for giving us life, and we're thanking God for, for sustaining us, and we're thanking God for bringing us to a particular season. We say this at certain events, where, you know, we sort of stop and say, hey, you know what, we're here like at a, at a bat mitzvah next week, and we just say, you know what, Lord, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for for bringing us along. Thank you for sustaining us and bringing us to this very point in time. That's kind of the, the heart of the Shehechianu prayer. Um, but I don't believe necessarily that when we're talking about this idea of building at CYT that God simply has in mind this idea of bringing us, me, this personal individual uh, growth. Or I don't believe that God necessarily has sustained CYT for 24 years just to have a fellowship. And it's great and we come together and, and we grow. But I believe that he is kept us and provided us and brought us to the season in a process that he's been working and in a process that he's actually building something more than just a fellowship and just more than individuals uh, who are growing and having a good time. So we've talked uh, in, in, these, in these months on this topic, we've talked about building for a couple of things, just kind of recap kind of the, the, the steps or the, I'll, I'll go this way, this is the way you guys see, the steps, uh, unless we're doing Hebrew, I guess it's that way. <laughs> Anyways, I may change it up, we'll see. But the, the, the way that we've been brought along here that, that Rabbi's been talking about, we've talked about, um, we started off talking about not putting treasures in holes with pockets. Remember from Haggai, book of Haggai, you know, you're out there building your own stuff and what God's temple is laying in ruins, God's house is laying in ruins, it's kind of like taking treasures and putting them in your pockets with, that have holes in them. 
Uh, we've talked about serving God in a particular way where we get to know God better, that we serve him wholeheartedly. Uh, we eagerly serve him, and we serve him with courage as we're building. This is all about building as we're growing. Again, we're not talking about stagnation or death. We're talking about growth. We've talked about uh, minimizing our to-do list because when we think, oh, we've got to grow, we've got to grow the congregation, what do we need to do? And we said, no, minimize the idea of what to do, but let's build about you know, the people we need to be. So forget our to-do list. Let's talk, talk about the people that we need to be. So we've talked about that some. Uh, we've talked about a foundation, foundations upon which to build, the foundation being the Messiah. It's a Messianic congregation. We've got to build on the Messiah and his, his life, his death, his, his resurrection. And uh, we've talked about building with good materials. And then this past Shabbat, Rabbi Chaim spoke about uh, God as the master architect, how he's the builder, and it's our responsibility to work with him as his people. So that's kind of getting us where we are today. And I want to look at today's passage as a model uh, just to give us further details about being part of God's building process, okay? So we're here in First Peter, and just to give you a little bit of I mean, a basic background about this book in general, um, it's pretty, pretty straightforward um, when you read it. It's a short book. You can read the whole book in, in pr- pretty short order. Um, it's about, you know, uh, encouragement in the face of persecution. Is that useful to anybody, you think? Yeah. So that's what it's about. And nowadays, you know, we, we do face persecutions. I, I don't know, and, and I struggled with this a little bit this week, thinking I don't know that we're really, at least in our context, every day facing the type of persecutions that this audience was facing. Um, but the persecutions nonetheless, and just a few thoughts on that to kind of, you know, to say that this is not completely off base with we face persecutions. I mean, the reality is, uh, you know, I'm not a prophet, but the times that we're in are changing. They're different. I mean, there's certainly some things that are, there's no new things under the sun. But I believe that many of our rights and our beliefs are being challenged nowadays. And I think, you know, beliefs that many of us hold uh, to be true and evident and, and hold dear are being threatened and and belittled, and patronized, and marginalized. Um, And it's important that we consider this, because in the midst of our world, we still need to remain an example and a representative for God. And as believers, you know, it's very very true that, I think it was said a little bit earlier, I mean, the, the, the reality is, when you choose to believe in God, and you choose to believe some of these things we've talked about, you choose to believe that foundation. And I talked about this about three, two, three weeks ago. You believe that God came to earth as a man, Fully God, fully human. Okay, let's spend the next nine mil- millennium figuring out how that works. No one has yet, but we're believing that. We believe that he died and rose again from the dead. Okay, that, we're believing all this stuff, and we're deciding to choose to believe that, and we're going this way. And I remember Rabbi Chaim, I think it was the last week, he did this hand motion. He said, you're, you're choosing to go this way, and the world's going pretty much this way in most of the cases. So you're going to face this, this opposition. I mean, you've got people that are wondering, you know, what are you doing here? You're giving up your Saturdays? It's beautiful outside. What are you doing today? You're... You go to you go where and you 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 give your money there too, you know, and you're you're putting people's other people's interests in front of yours, you know. What about looking out for number one? Um, so I think that the pressures and the realities that, that surround Peter's audience and surround you and I um, are, are real. And just like as I think Peter was addressing here, these challenges, these pressures, greatly impact how we feel and how we behave. And it's in those times when we're squeezed and the pressure's on and the fire's on that whatever's inside comes out. You, know, you take an orange and you squeeze it, what comes out? Orange juice, maybe some seeds, because that's what's in it, right? After my wife feeds our newborn, you squeeze her, you say, what's going to come out, you know? <laughs> I can tell you. 
What's in is what comes out, and persecution and fire bring out the stuff that's really, really, really inside, and it's very easy to put on a good face when things are going well, uh, but it's different when things are really, really coming at you from every side, and there's persecution every day when you're choosing to, to, to go a certain way, and therefore it's important for us to consider what is on the inside of us, and that's what this passage is talking about today, because that's what's going to come out under pressure. My question is, you know, is it going to be, when you're under pressure in these situations, what's going to come out? Is it going to be faith, or is it going to be vomit in that rotten, spoiled milk, probably, that's going to come out of Vera when you squeeze her? So that's why Peter, right here in this book, right at the beginning, is bringing them back to the basics. He's reminding his, his audience that there's a greater hope and a greater hope that's waiting for them. And he's telling them what they need to do and what they need to change in order to move forward in their spiritual lives. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about moving forward, yes, in our spiritual lives individually, but as we'll see, more importantly, together as a, as a, as a congregation and as, as looking at how God's building and how that's happening. So... I see these sh- few short verses, or these five verses. There's a lot in here, and I'm going to kind of touch on some of the stuff, but there's a lot more theology and other things that are in here that I probably won't even get to. But I kind of saw, I kind of took a, a view of these passages here, sort of looked at them as a, as a building plan or a task list and some action items. And when you look at the verbs, your verbs might be different here. When you look at, you know, when you look at Scripture sometimes, you, sometimes it's good to look at, they talk about looking at different parts of speech. You know, look at the pronouns. When it says, therefore, go back and look what it was there for. And when it says, and, you know, look at the things that connect sentences. And one thing kind of cool to look at is the verbs, what's going on, the action. And there's about four, excuse me, about four actions here that I see that in order, at least in my, my translation here, is, is to rid, to long for, to come, and then to let yourselves be built. That's kind of the, that's what's going on here in these passages. And, it's, and it's, it's linear, meaning it's kind of in progression like that, but it's also not really in progression. So I might kind of jump around a little bit because it's, uh, it's not really linear. I want to skip down to, to verse 3 because this, I think, is sort of the first little uh, prerequisite, if you will, uh, to, to getting going on this building plan and this task list and taking these action steps. And this verse 3 says, really says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Basically, all the stuff I just told you before, um, pay attention and let's talk about doing these things. If indeed you, you've, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Um, and that's important to think about. You know, I often do that with my kids, actually, and you'll probably don't call anybody on me here when I tell you. But, you know, they, they might say, uh, hey, I might say, it's time for dinner, it's time to eat, and I put the food there. Do I have to eat that? Well, no. But if you, if you don't want to be hungry and if you don't want, you know, that's what you're getting and that's w- that'll be there tomorrow morning kind of thing. I mean, if, sure, if you want to, you know, if you want to not be hungry, sure. Well, we say it's time to come in. It's time, you know, summertime's the worst if you have kids because it stays late till like, you know, 1030 at night or something. But, you know, really, like 8 o'clock at night is still light out and they want to come on in. It's 730, but it's light. Do I have to come in? No. But if indeed you want to sleep indoors today, you have to come in, you know. <laughs> and we've never left our kids outside overnight, so please. But that's just the idea here is that if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you've enjoyed God at any time, you might feel not like that right now at all. But that's not the point. But if indeed you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then have a heads up. This is a reference to Psalm 34 in verse 8. You don't have to turn there, but it says, David says, after David has been rescued, uh, he had feigned uh, madness to Abimelech, and he realized I'd been refuge, he re- uh, rescued, he thanked God, and then he's praising God, and he says this. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happier are those who take refuge in him. He's rehearsing this. He's rehearsing, although he just went through a very difficult time, that 
He has tasted. He has seen that the Lord is good. And he's, he's happy, or ashray is the Hebrew word, the idea that he's happy because he's walking with God. And that's, that's the point there. So if, in fact, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, regardless of what you might feel right now, then have a heads up, and let's talk about what these steps tell us to do. And the first thing they tell us to do is to rid yourselves. And this, um, I won't bore you with the boring grammatical stuff, but it's, it's a prerequisite to, the, to, the, to this, this thing in the middle. You've got, if indeed you've tasted, and you've got rid yourselves, but in the middle is really what he's trying to get at, which is to long for the pure spiritual milk, to long for that pure spiritual milk. And to do that, you first need to rid yourself uh, of these things. And that idea of ridding yourself just means um, it, it's, a, it's a continual action. Sure, it's, it's not like, okay, you're going to rid yourself and then you, that's it forever. It's a continual process. We need to be reminded of some of these things that hinder us from really longing for and feasting on the, sp- the, true, spiritual wor- the true spiritual milk. Um, so we need to lay aside, we need to take off and lay down some of these things. I just want to go through some of these things um, because, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are probably familiar with this passage. I've always been familiar with this passage, the living stones, and we're going to talk about the living stones, but forget about the living stones for a second. There's some pretty heavy-duty things here that, that I think um, might speak to us. Maybe you'll skip one or two of these items that we need to rid yourselves of, that maybe you won't be guilty of them, but when I read them, I, I pretty much hit on every one. <laughs> so um, first thing it says is you need to rid yourselves, lay aside, take off, lay down uh, malice, okay? Now, malice uh, is basically ill will, meaning harm, um, things that are malignant, things that are, cause cancer, deterioration, and death. This is what malice causes. These are basically things that are, if you want to know what these things are not, you go to Galatians 5. You've heard of the fruit of the Spirit, being joyful and long-suffering and patient and so forth. These are, those are the virtues. Malice is the opposite of that, opposed to virtues. So as I'm reading through these, you know, take, take some inventory. We're not going to point fingers at anybody. But these are the things, again, keep in mind, these are the things that Peter is saying, look, you're experiencing struggles you need to feast on the word, the, the truth of things that are enduring. He's just talked about how things of God endure where things of flesh are temporary. So you need to rid yourselves of these things if you want to feast on the word. So these are the things he's saying get rid of on a continual basis, ongoing, over and over again. Number two thing is guile. Guile is just uh, it's, it's deceit or being cunning or being treacherous, you know, trying to, to again, bring ill will you know, in, in a sneaky way. The next thing is insincerity. To rid yourself of insincerity. That's things like hypocrisy or pretense or, how about this one, outward show. These are the things, um, instead of outward show, consider who you are when no one else is around, who you are when no one's looking. And that's the opposite of being insincere. You want to be the same as you are when no one's looking as when people are looking. If someone's looking at you and watching you, how you're going to act. That's insincerity. It reminded me, uh, last night there was a book I read um, called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, by a guy named Jack Deere. I don't know if any of you have heard that book. It's a great book. And uh, actually, now that I think about it, it wasn't in the book. I listened to a podcast that he did. Uh, he was in Hawaii or somewhere speaking. And uh, he's an, ex, uh, an ex-seminary professor. And he was at a very kind of uh, seminary. that was very uh, conservative and would not like things of the Spirit and so forth and power of God. And he kind of ended up ex- exploring that. He wrote this book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, which is his story but uh, no longer worked for that seminary. But when he was at that seminary, he was kind of getting into this stuff, and he went to a prayer meeting one night. He started doing these prayer meetings where they would, do, they would pray for people. Imagine that, novel idea. They'd pray for people. They'd pray for healing. 
things like that, and, and miracles would happen, and sometimes miracles wouldn't happen, but he faithfully would pray. And he told a story about how, you know, word got out, oh, you know, Professor Deer is doing these meetings, and it's like crazy stuff, you know, you wouldn't believe it, you need to go check it out. And so students would come, and they'd, he started seeing these students. One night he said, I saw all these students, I, I recognized them from the seminary, and I'm like, oh man, they're going to, you know, they're going to go back, and they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're here, they're here, but they're taking notes. And so he said, I just stopped, and I said a prayer to God. I said, oh God, just you know, show your power tonight, you know, show Show your, your healing power and all these kind of things. And he said, you know, we had our prayer meeting at night. And he goes, nothing really spectacular happened. And he was kind of bummed. And then it hit him. He realized, you know what, that prayer was just bogus. Because <laughs> I was praying for an outward show. It was insincere. I didn't really want God to move. I just didn't want to look like an idiot, is what he said. And I didn't want to look like, oh, God doesn't work, and this is just a bunch of baloney kind of thing. So he really got a wake-up call. And I think this is what they're talking about, this idea of insincerity, to rid yourself of insincerity, to check your motives as to why, why you might be doing something. Consider who you are when, when no one's looking. And maybe you're wonderful, and maybe you've got no malice, guile, or insincerity. But I get to this last one. This is the one that I think really, really gets me. This is envy and jealousy. And this is not the kind of jealousy that we see God exhibiting in a good way or righteous jealousy and anger and so forth. Um, but this reminded me of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 4. And this is a verse that really, my wife pointed it out to me one time, and I really always go back to this verse because it's pretty hard-hitting. And I'm going to read it for you. Um, Ecclesiastes 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says, Then I considered all the skillful work that is done. Surely it is nothing more than competition between one person and another. The idea being, and think about this, the idea of thinking that basically here Solomon is saying, Anything you're doing to succeed, well, I don't care, or, or, or to look good, you know, it says all skillful work that is done. There's other ways to translate it, I guess, but anything, any striving, sometimes it says, uh, it's, to, it's in jealousy of someone else. You're trying to impress somebody else. Envy, you're jealous of them. That's a hard one, but I, I just want to do good at my job. Okay, maybe, you, but maybe you're doing it to impress somebody. I, I just want to dress up and look nice. I just want a nice car. I, just wanna have, I don't want to have mechanical trouble with my car. That's really the big problem. I hate being in the shop all the time. Maybe. Maybe you like looking good in a nice car. I don't know. But that's what envy and that's what jealousy is about. And that's what Ecclesiastes 4.4 is talking about. And that's the last in this list of the first uh, action item we need to take before we move on to feasting on the true spiritual uh, milk, the true spirit, which is the word of God and the things of God. We need to rid ourselves of malice, guile, insincerity, and envy. These are things to check ourselves on. The last thing uh, is slander. Slander is a big, a big topic in the Bible. Uh, this is evil speech. It's literally speaking against, to speak against someone or something. In James 3, I'm going to read from James 3 several of these verses. I think this is a, a passage that uh, we hear, and we hear these messages on the tongue, and we can go, as Heim would say, we'd go off in the ditch here about the power of the tongue and the spoken word, and then we can go the other way over here. But I think that James 3, and in, in this context of ridding ourselves of things that keep us from the, the, the pure spiritual milk of God um, and the things of God, are one thing can be slander in the way we speak. So I want to read from James 3. James 3 says, If someone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect individual, able to control the entire body as well. And if we put bits into the mouths of horses to get them to obey us, then we guide their entire bodies. Look at ships, too. Though they are so large or driven by harsh winds, they are steered by a tiny rudder wherever the pilot's inclination directs. So, too, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it has great pretensions. Think how small a flame sets a huge forest ablaze. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. 
It pollutes the entire body and sets fire to the course of human existence and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and sea creature is subdued and has been subdued by humankind, but no human being can subdue the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things should not be so, my brothers and sisters. So I think this really gives us a picture of what it means to slander. We're, we, we can do incredible things with the way we speak, and that's what, the way we speak and, and slander is one thing we need to rid ourselves of continually. Again, it's not going to be a one-time. It is a prerequisite, but it's a prerequisite to, to feasting on the Word of God. And slander is a big deal, speaking against one another, speaking against something. <laughs> so to kind of recap this, this action point, these first three verses here, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, regardless of how you feel right now, regardless of maybe things that have happened since then, but you know, and you've tasted that the Lord is good, and you've enjoyed Him, you need to rid yourself of these things. And then, seek after the pure spiritual milk, which again is the Word of God, the things of God. Now, I love this image here. He says like, a new, says like newborn infants. The mind says like newborn infants um, long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for, this is actually the only command verb in this whole section, the real legitimate command, to long for this pure spiritual milk. And uh, if you've ever seen a newborn infant, I've had the experience of seeing a few. Uh, <laughs> We've, we've seen four. Well, you've seen four. I mean, you, memory serves. I'm sure you can. Your baby's back there on the soundboard, so maybe he's probably beyond this stage. But as the pure, <laughs> the pure infant, you know, I watch it now. You watch, I watch Vera. It's amazing. And, I, and I'm sure back in this time, too, I mean, uh, I doubt there were, uh, they didn't go out and buy Infamil at the uh, local, you know, apothecary or whatever. They, this is, we're talking about mother's milk here. And uh, when a baby comes out, it's amazing. They go right there and they start feeding and then, once you know, th- that process is successful, it's amazing. They, they have no desire for anything else. I mean, I used to feel bad. Like, I'd sit there, I'm, you know, Vera's sitting next to me, my little baby, and I'm eating a peanut butter sandwich and just looking at her. And she's just looking at me, looking, not really looking at the sandwich, but it's not like she's like, oh, you're my kids now. Oh, I want a sandwich. No, she's just like, that's cool. I, get, I can get some ice cream, and I feel like, gosh, she's not getting any ice cream. I feel pretty bad. No, she, <laughs> she wants one thing, you know, the pure milk. And that's the picture here. That's the picture that we're supposed to be after we rid ourselves of these things. We're to long like a newborn infant. And again, if you haven't had one in a while, that's, well, that's what it looks like. You get all this stuff right in front of their face, and you know, they don't want it, no interest in it. And not only that, I mean, at least with Levy, I mean, you maybe don't remember, she was, what are they called, big boned, what do they call that now? You know, she's, she was fat. That's what she was. I mean, <laughs> all off of that, you know, she got everything she needed, plus, and. You know, here in Colorado, since I've been here, I was talking to Kenneth, who's from West Virginia, originally. I mean, like, here you got to drink about three liters of water a day. I mean, nowadays, and I, and I got in the habit of doing it. Vera's drinking zero thimbles of water a day, yet completely hydrated, completely nourished. It's am- I'm always amazed by that. How she gets by with no water. She's got to be thirsty. No, she's getting exactly what she needs, the pure spirit. And that's the picture. That's the image here. This is the image of, of, of feasting and be- being on the, the, seeking after the pure spiritual milk. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a goal to shoot for, you know, but don't forget. Forget about that until you've rid yourself and you consider these other areas in your life. In the last little section, the last section here of these, of these action items and these steps, talk about being fitted together by God. In my, my translation says to let yourselves be built. You could say you yourselves are being built. It's happening to you. There's, there's a certain amount of 
you allowing this to happen? And um, we can either we can pursue that. We can pursue allowing God to build us, or we can do the opposite. Uh, we could be passive, or worse yet, we could be reluctant to be built or to be fitted. Um, have you ever seen uh, masonry work or stone? Have you ever done any stone mason work before, or you seen it? I, I had a friend that had a rural cabin. Um, out, actually, had it in out in southern Virginia, and he had his, this little cabin. You just go in the summertime, but he ended up, con- he was an architect guy, and he ended up converting it into a, a cabin that he could live in all year round. So I helped him do all this. St- I mean, I, well, I helped him means handed him like a hammer, you know, <laughs> hauled up some roofing material up on the, that kind of, that's how I helped him. I built it. Um, but there's one thing he didn't do. He had these old, these old brick, uh, you know, they built, they built on the, these footings, you know, and he had these, these old ugly kind of brick footings, and he had the stone, stonemason come out and kind of make really nice looking columns, you know. Uh, out of stone, and um, we have some at the seminary in the student center. Those kind of columns that are in there, real nice. And and first they come and they just they dump this pile of rocks, you know, just they dump a pile of rocks there. And then the masons you know, s- sits down and he starts, you know, putting these rocks one on top of another. And it's like building in three dimensions. I've got another friend who's a mason in this area, and he, he says, you know, I never could, I'm, I can do it. I'm just never good. It just takes a particular skill to be able to see in three dimensions because you're not just like laying a brick on top of another these are these are uh, different shaped stones and you're fitting them together and one looks good this way maybe one's got a good front but the side's not good so maybe they knock off a piece of the side and they work on fitting these things um, into a beautiful stone column or a fireplace and it takes a while but initially it's just a it's just a big pile of rocks um, but the mason chooses where they go it's his vision of the whole project the stone has no say in how it's formed and fitted. You know, if it gets a piece knocked off, it gets a piece knocked off. And if it's, it's reject, reject. If it, I want you at the bottom, that's where you're going. Um, really has no say in the matter. But unfortunately, we do somewhat. I mean, it depends on your theology. But the reality is you can be reluctant to be fitted, whereas the stone can't. And quite frankly, some of us simply are just not interested in being fitted. It's too scary. Uh, it's too permanent. Chaim often talks about the C word, about the C for you, C, c- committed, you know, commitment. And it's just a little too permanent. Maybe we prefer to be fitted with Velcro, or we could just, you know, <laughs> you know. And that's your prerogative. But I don't believe that God, that's what God's looking for when he talks about being fitted together. And in one sense, and I kind of talked about it earlier, in one sense, a congregation is a group of believers um, of individual living stones. I think that's sort of the picture that I've often thought about with this passage, that yes, we're, I'm a living stone, you know? Um, but in my opinion, that, that just lends itself a little bit too much to individuality. And individuality, if you don't know, now you'll know, it's greatly praised in our society nowadays. You know, these idea of individuality, I think it's, it's sometimes emphasized too much in our congregations, you know? And sure, some time alone with God is important in personally growing. And I'm not trying to, 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 to say we don't have to have our personal time with God or spiritual growth. That's very important. But the picture of the living stones here in First Peter has to do uh, with building, being the actual building materials that God uses. Now, I had some, some pictures I was going to have Isaac draw because I didn't have the PowerPoint today. He was going to draw some stuff up here. But, uh, you know, if you, I had a picture of this, like a field of stones, just random. Whereas it was side of a mountain, just stones. And you see something like that, and it's like, oh, you, you drive by it. But then you see these other pictures of sometimes like ancient ruins, or there's David's temple or David's house, you know, and, 
And now it's not like a house we think now, but you can see there clearly something was going on there. There's, there's, there's little short walls and there's rooms, and you can tell something was being built there. It wasn't just a pile of random stones. So there's a difference between, and those could have been living stones that are sitting on the side of the mountain, but there's really, they're different unless they've been fitted together into some useful purpose. I want to read to you a little bit from a, a commentary I read on First Peter in this passage here from, from a, a lady named Karen Jobes. It was pretty good. I like, I like her words, and I've said a little bit of it, but I want to read her words because I really liked them. Um, she said, The image of the living stones has implication for the believer's relationship to other believers. In Peter's description, the stones are not lying about in isolation or disorder. They're not heaped in a pile or scattered across a field. Believers are not individually temples of God. Sounds a little heretical for a minute, doesn't it? We've often heard that. She said, but they are each put in place into a spiritual house. Not primarily a social organization, but a place where transformed lives are offered in sacrificial service to God. Let me read that one again. Not primarily a social organization, but a place where transformed lives are offered in sacrificial service to God. The significance and purpose of the individual believer's life cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Each living stone has a role to play for the integrity and well-being of the whole. And I pictured, when I read that, I pictured, anyone ever played the game Jenga? You know that game? Anyone not know it? Good, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> it's actually a small little game you can play at parties. They actually have a big, they have a big one at a bowling alley I was at at a birthday, we had a birthday party last year for, I think it was, I think it was Zach. They had, a, they had a big, like, life-size one. But really, it's these little tiny, like, these little pieces of wood that are about as big as your finger, and they, they're, they're all about the same shape and stuff, and they initially start in Jenga with the, this column, maybe this tall, and they're all stacked very nicely and neatly and tightly together. And the point of the game is each person in turn takes the piece out and places it on top. And the idea is you, you do that until it eventually falls because the structure gets threatened there, you know. And so, you know, you, you get to a point where you're like, oh, boy, you know the next person, that one's going to, there's just no chance uh, that's going to happen. So that, it kind of gave me that, uh, that picture of thinking about Jenga, how things are fitted together at the beginning. And but as things, you know, if, if we have that Velcro, for instance, if we're, if we're pulling out, if we're not committed to being part of that structure, it does. Like she said here, uh, each living stone has a role to play for the integrity and well-being of the whole. Otherwise, it's like a Jenga game that's just about on that last piece. Sure, you take one or two out. It takes a while. You know, people come and go, and God fits in different ways. But if too many of those things get pulled out, there's no integrity at all, and it falls down. And we say, oh, we say Jenga. But that's kind of fun, but it's not fun in a real-life setting when God's fitting people together and doing something, which I believe he's doing here at our congregation or wherever you're committed, to be committed somewhere, to build and to be involved with that. But the important thing to take away from the, this imagery, I think, is that without the fitting together, again, you just have a pile of rocks. And no one's going to give it a second look. Like I said, it's not going to be like, we've discovered something. What? It's a pile of rocks. No. No one's going to give it a second look unless, we, unless there's some fitting together, unless we allow the rocks to be built into a rock wall or a column or a, fire, uh, or a nice fireplace or something like that that's built by rocks being fitted together. And that's going to take some, some work on our part. There is, there is something, some complicity we have with that. Um, I mean, you can say, hey, I don't, you know what? Stonemason wants to knock off that little edge. You know, the fits, piece fits perfectly in there to make the right angle, but there's a little piece that sticks off. You know, you can, you say, I don't want that whacked off. Well, that's great, but when I walk by that column, I'm going to catch my leg on it every time, and it's not going to be fun. Just, you know, anyways. <laughs> So I want to recap some things. 
for myself, because sometimes I think maybe I haven't clear, so I'm going to try to recap it. Number one, God is building. These are things we've talked about today, some things we've talked about up to today. God is building. He is the architect. There are plans. He's got them. And we work with him as his possession. If you remember several weeks back, we are his possession. We're his workers, but it's not like our, you know, our arm around him. We're working arm in arm. We are his fellow workers, but ultimately we are his workers. We are his possession. So we work with him as his possession and as his workers. But as we see today that not only are we his workers, we are also, in a sense, his building materials that he uses. So sure, we're the workers, but we're also these stones that he uses. And because of that, we must work on ridding ourselves of those things that are taking us off course, causing us to focus on the perishable things of the world. And then we need to continually seek after God and his word, allowing him to not just change us personally, but to bring us together as community, fitting us together in ways that might seem uncomfortable. And quite honestly, they might seem scary and they might seem too permanent, you know. Excuse me, but that's how things are built, you know. Sometimes, you know, you build things, there's things inside that just, they, they stay there. They got to stay there. They're inside. They're part of that building process and it wouldn't work otherwise. Like trying to take the dashboard of your car apart. Have you ever tried to get in there to replace a bulb or something? I mean, <laughs> it's fit together in a certain way, and really it's meant to be that way, and, you know, it wouldn't work otherwise. But it's, it's a, there's this permanency to it. But, that, but doing that, ridding ourselves of those things and allowing ourselves to be, to be formed and fitted together, that's how we become ready and willing and able to build with God. That was the title of my message today. That's kind of if you wonder how, that, how we got there. We started there. But being ready and willing, what does it mean to be ready, willing, and able to build with God? Because we're talking about building with him. And I think that's how it is, by doing those things. So when people say, you know, uh, where do you go to, what do you do, where, where do you worship? Oh, we worship at Yeshua Tzion. They say, where is Yeshua Tzion? You know, when they say that, sure, uh, we can give them an address. And, well, we meet on Bellevue, you know, Greenwood Village Community Church. Or hopefully one day we can point to a building and say, this is where we are, right? But more importantly regardless of, of, of how that looks, the truth is that we can point to a group of living stones, not just random rocks scattered around, but we can point that this is where I worship. This is, this is the building. You know, that's in, in this sort of spiritual sense, this is the building where things have been fitted together. People that are not simply laying around in a pile, but people that are, that are, that are being fitted together, fashioned by God into a cohesive form that can be acceptable, pleasing, and used by Him as it as this verse 5 uh, rounds out. So, as we sit here today, I want to ask you just to take the, take the next few minutes to, as Chaim says, have a talk with God. <laughs> Contemplate, uh, you know, in these last few minutes we have together, with what things maybe you need to, that may, might be keeping you from that, that, that pure spiritual milk that's going to allow you to grow because this is about growth. This, this, this thing here that talks about um, growing in your salvation. What, how does it say? It uh, da, 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 may grow into salvation. This isn't about becoming. This is the idea that we're all believers here. We've tasted that God is good and we're growing. This is not a stagnating process. This is a sanctific sanctification process. What things do you need to rid yourselves of? Take stock of that. Is there something that you need to, to rid yourself of today? And if there is, you know, take some time with God and, and speak to him about that right now. We'll take a few minutes as we listen to a few worship songs, and uh, after those songs are done, we'll, we'll close out our service with a, with a prayer and a benediction. But during that time, a few of us will be available uh,
to pray with you if you'd like. If you'd like to have prayer for some of these things or something else entirely, that's fine. Um, or just quietly at your seat, um, have a conversation uh, with God uh, about some of the things that uh, have been shared with you today.